let's go to the scriptures, and I'll try and get you out of here just a few minutes early before we melt. Um, This summer, while I've been talking to you, and I know you've heard from other people too, you've heard from Isaiah, you've heard from Donna, but while I've been talking to you this summer, we've been doing an overview of the wisdom literature of the scriptures. In the Old Testament, there are five books that we call wisdom books. Those are the books of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And so far, we've talked about King Solomon, who wrote about half of our wisdom literature. We've done an overview of the book of Proverbs, and we've done an overview of the book of Ecclesiastes. And today, I want to give kind of a real simple, big-picture perspective on the book of Psalms. So open up your Bibles to the book of... No! First Corinthians, <laughs> of course. Go with me to First Corinthians chapter 13, and we'll start there today. Let me put three unrelated ideas in your thinking to begin with. Number one, do any of you know what a mucker is? And I'm not talking about someone who mucks the stalls of livestock. In the field of construction, have any of you ever worked as a mucker? Or you're familiar with what a mucker is? I had a summer job one year in high school as a mucker, and what a mucker does is a mucker shovels concrete. I spent all summer filling a wheelbarrow with concrete and getting the wheelbarrow where the truck couldn't go and then shoveling this cement. Um, Muckers scrape the concrete when it comes off of the truck, and muckers place rebar. And isn't that interesting that we have a substance as powerful as concrete, but we still try to reinforce it? Why do we stick long lengths of of steel in cement. We put rebar in concrete because even though concrete is unbelievably strong, concrete is vulnerable to tension. Concrete is vulnerable to pressure and it's vulnerable to shifting foundations. So when we insert rebar into cement, it reinforces this concrete and it exponentially increases the strength from the inside out. That's number one. Number two, How many of you, Nick Legaspi, have ever been scuba diving? How many here have ever been scuba diving? I I have never been scuba diving. I'm so jealous of you. I grew up on the Ponderé River in eastern Washington, and every day that the weather would allow, because we had a home on the water, I I snorkeled, snorkeled constantly. I've never scuba dived, but in all of my snorkeling quests and adventures, I I would always push the limits of how deep I could go. And I remember I was snorkeling at a a lake in North Idaho and the water was just crystal clear and I saw a wallet on the bottom. And I was swimming deeper and deeper and the pressure in my head was building and building, but I knew I was close. It's a little deceptive when the water's that clear, but I was so close and I didn't want to back off. I was afraid that my head was going to pop. I was afraid my eardrums were going to break and I was going to bleed from my ears. How is it that scuba divers can go so deep without the pressure crushing their skull? Well, the answer, of course, is oxygen. When fresh oxygen, when breath is pumping through the scuba diver's system, they can withstand the pressure of the ocean depths. Number three, how many of you have ever read the book, Everything I Really Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten? Any of you ever read that book? All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Um, This book was first published in 1986. 
multiple reprints. It's really great. It's clever. I'll give you the punchline here in case you haven't read it before. This is what the author, Robert Fulgham, learned in kindergarten. Number one, share everything. Number two, play fair. Number three, don't hit people. Number four, put things back where you found them. Number five, clean up your own mess. Number six, don't take things that aren't yours. Number seven, say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Number eight, wash your hands before you eat. Number nine, flush. (laughs) Number 10, warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Number 11, live a balanced life. Learn some and think some and paint and sing and dance and play and work every day some. Number 12, take a nap every afternoon. Number 13, when you go out into the world, watch out for traffic. Hold hands and stick together. I love this one. Number 14, wonder. Remember the little seed in the styrofoam cup. And then finally, remember the Dick and Jane book that you first learned to read with. The first word you learned, which is the biggest word of all, look. You know, that's pretty good. That's pretty profound. If you think deeply about these thoughts, there's some profound wisdom there. However, we also know that there are essential things in life that we have to learn beyond kindergarten. You might see the seed form there, but uh, most brain surgeons have education beyond kindergarten. Not many kindergartners can create a reliable algorithm or put together a a complicated business deal. Uh, The Apostle Paul said it this way. In 1 Corinthians 13, 11, he said, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. So, we have a mucker who shovels concrete and places rebar. We have a scuba diver who can plumb the depths because of oxygen. And we have a need to mature beyond a kindergarten level of understanding. So how in the world do all three of these things connect? Well, they connect inside the wisdom literature of the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms, 150 chapters, about half of which, by the way, were written by King David, Solomon's dad. So the father-son duo of David and Solomon wrote most of the wisdom literature in our our Bibles, the book of Psalms, please hear this, is your prayer book. In churches like Grace, um, which are more strictly Protestant, we're not very liturgical in the sense that we don't have a a, a real structure to how we pray and how we worship. We're a little more free-flowing. Churches like Grace tend to, to not understand that part of the purpose of the book of Psalms is not just good devotional reading. You know, a lot of people, you know, I'll read a psalm and I'll say my prayers. And that's how I do my devotions. The book of Psalms is about far more than that. In ancient Israel, from whom we have come, they viewed the book of Psalms as a tool to teach them to pray and to help them connect with the presence of God. Now, in churches like Grace, we love the Psalms because we can relate to them, they speak to the human nature, they, they read our soul. But um, in the first century church, it was their prayer book. It's how they prayed. In fact, you know what's fascinating? Do you remember the story of Jonah and the whale? 
in the middle of that story when Jonah has been swallowed by the fish and he's, he's parts of three days he's spending in the depths of the ocean in this fish. He prays this amazing prayer. Do you know every single word he prayed was a quote from the Psalms? You'd think that you'd get into the belly of a fish and sink to the bottom and you'd just say, help, and you'd just start pouring your heart out. Everything he prayed came from the Psalms. The, the first century church prayed the Psalms. After the time of the apostles, the church prayed the Psalms. And many streams of Christianity still do pray the Psalms. Um, but, but, but way too many Christians, and I'm talking about Christians like you and like me, way too many Christians in churches like Grace, we have a kindergarten understanding of prayer. What we understand about prayer is true, but we haven't been taught. It's not our fault, so it's not criticism today, but we haven't been taught, and we haven't learned to practice some of the depths of prayer that are available for us. So here's what we teach. <clears throat> if you get tired of me and you want to change a pace, you could join our kindergartner class around the corner, and this is what we would teach you about prayer. Number one, we would teach you that God loves you, and that's true. Number two, we would teach you that God wants a relationship with you, and that's true. Number three, we would teach you that since he wants a relationship with you, he set up prayer as a way of communicating with him, and that's also true. So we would tell you in light of that, number four, that prayer is just talking to God. And how many of you have heard that? Prayer is just talking to God. It's just when you open up your mouth, you pour out your heart, and that's true. <clears throat> but then we also teach that prayer is how we get things from God. Prayer is how we get God to give us stuff, and it's how we get God to do things in our lives. Isn't that, isn't that right? Isn't that what we teach? So I, I ask him for something, and he does it. I ask him to give me something, and he gives it. I ask him to do something, and he does it. At least, sometimes he does. He does it just enough for me to believe that he can, but he doesn't always do it enough to make me be confident that he will. Sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. And if my understanding of prayer is limited to a kindergarten understanding where prayer is all about, I ask God to do something out there and he gives it to me, if that's all that I understand about prayer, then several things happen. I, I set myself up for a crisis of faith when the prayer doesn't get answered. Or I, I have to, <clears throat> wow, did I just scream at you and lose my voice suddenly? I, I have to change my theology of prayer because it doesn't make sense. Or I have to start making excuses for why the prayer doesn't work. Have any of you ever prayed for things that didn't seem to work? After a while, you have to start explaining that. Either it doesn't work or I'm just not praying hard enough. Or maybe I don't have enough faith. Or maybe it's not God's will to give that to me. And maybe I just have to accept it. Or, or maybe it's just a mystery. Or maybe it's spiritual warfare and there's something holding back my prayer. And listen, sometimes all of that can be true to varying degrees. But sometimes there's more to it than that. Sometimes, because we don't always have the liturgical foundation or the, the ancient understanding of prayer, sometimes we just don't understand 
because of our kindergarten level of perspective, we don't understand one of the most powerful effects of prayer. So, so here's the sermon today. This is your message today. Prayer is spiritual formation. Prayer is the process. So, so the act of prayer, the process of prayer is the means whereby God changes me from the inside out. So when I pray, <clears throat> God starts to shape who I am from the inside, even if he doesn't seem to do anything at all with the prayer that I prayed. In fact, a couple more quotes here. Um, anybody familiar with the name Oswald Chambers? He wrote the classic devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. One of the most powerful daily devotionals ever. Listen to what Chambers said. He said, to say that prayer changes things is not as close to the truth as saying prayer changes me and I change things. God has established things so that prayer changes the way a person looks at things. Prayer is not a matter of changing things externally, but of working miracles in a person's inner nature. Mother Teresa, who was not a kindergartner in her faith, she said, I used to pray that God would feed the hungry or that God would do this or that, but now I pray that he will guide me to do whatever I'm supposed to do. I used to pray for answers, but now I'm praying for strength. I used to pray and believe that prayer changes things, but now I know that prayer changes us and we change things. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't change things through prayer. He does. Jesus told us to pray. He modeled prayer. Prayer works. So hear me today. I am not shrinking our understanding of prayer down to a little personal exercise that blesses you. No, prayer works. But when prayer doesn't work, prayer is still one of the most powerfully transformative practices that you and I could ever engage in. Prayer is the process Am I stressing you out? Throw it. Thank you. Prayer is the process whereby rebar gets inserted into our souls. Prayer is, is the pipeline through which oxygen <clears throat> gets pumped into our system. <clears throat> and prayer brings us into contact with the presence of God. Prayer reorients us on the inside. Uh, prayer helps us to see things we couldn't see before we prayed and understand things that we couldn't understand before we prayed. It humbles us and empowers us and it breaks us and it rebuilds us and it changes things even if it never does anything out there. Now, it will do things out there. But when you pray, have two perspectives. I'm praying for something to change externally, but while I'm doing this, God put rebar in my soul. Change me on the inside. Um, there's a Celtic prayer book that I use sometimes to pray. See, when I pray by myself, just with my own understanding, I pray about my issues. I pray for my family. I pray for you. I pray for my loved ones. I'll take a few seconds and say, okay, God, who would you like me to pray for today? And Because and, that's important. We, have to, we want to pray what's on God's mind. And if you pause for a few seconds in prayer, sure enough, somebody's mug is going to flash across your face and, oh yeah, I forgot to pray for them. And, or you remember a person or a need. But, but if that's what I'm left to, there are some things I'll never pray. There are certain parts of theology that I'll never visit in prayer. 
There's certain needs that I'll never even think of, and I won't think of them because I don't even have the capacity to pray that way because that capacity has to be formed through prayer. So there's a prayer book that I use in addition to my spontaneous prayer. It's, it's a Celtic prayer book. And in this prayer from the early Celtic church, this prayer said, God the Spirit lives in us like structured steel so that the pressures from without cannot crush us. We are triple kept by triune love shielded by the three in one. So the Trinity. So this Celtic faith had this understanding that when I pray, God reinforces my soul. It puts rebar in my soul. It pumps oxygen in my soul. And this is why, and now I'll explain something about the Psalms. This is why so many of the Psalms sound psychotic. When you read the Psalms, they're so um, crazy. King David would go into a prayer time in the pit of despair. He is ready to run up the white flag of surrender. He wants to die. And a few verses later, he's saying, wow, by my God, I can run through a troop. I can leap over a wall. He would go from despair to saying, wow, my arms are so strong. I can bend a bow of bronze. David was nuts. In fact, I've had a medical doctor tell me that they are absolutely convinced that King David was bipolar. And they're not joking. They're like, no, 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 no. When you read the Psalms, the way he cycles up and cycles down multiple times in the same Psalm, believe me, David was bipolar. And maybe, maybe he was. And maybe that would explain some of his very compulsive decisions that he made. And maybe it would make us respect some of his accomplishments even more. Or maybe David touched a reality in prayer where the process so shaped him, so inserted rebar on the inside of him that he would start out in the pits and he would leave in the heights even when nothing had changed around him. Nothing around him had changed, but everything on the inside of him had changed. So let's do this for just a couple of minutes. Let me take you to Psalm 3. So we will finally get to the book of Psalms. Let me walk you through just a couple of thoughts from the first Psalm of David in the book of Psalms. So again, David wrote about 70-ish of the 150. Here's his first one. Psalm 3 was written when Absalom, David's son, had rebelled and betrayed his father. David was the king. His son Absalom, because of an offense and some bitterness and some issues that had occurred, he decided to steal the kingdom from David. He slandered his father. He won the hearts of the people. He staged a coup. He got the people to support him being a usurper. And he's now after David's life. And 2 Samuel tells us that when David left the city, and that's when he wrote this prayer. When David left the city, he was barefoot. Interesting detail, huh? But it's a sign of grief, and the king is tender-footed, and his feet are hurting just like his heart is hurting, and his heart is hurting so bad that the scripture tells us his head was covered, he was bent over, and he was crying loudly. So the citizens of this kingdom saw their, their warrior king, their champion hero, barefoot, tenderly walking, covered with this, this cloak, and weeping as he walked. And in that space, David writes Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? 
Many are saying to me, God will not deliver him. Listen, no matter how messed up your family situation might be, no matter how weird or how painful it might be, it's probably not quite as bad as having your son trying to kill you as you leave the city weeping. And so it makes sense that he would say, God, everywhere I'd look, there's an enemy. And everywhere I turn, there's this message. God's not going to help you. God's not going to come through for you. He's not going to restore you. God's not going to answer this prayer. You're done. Just keep walking, David. God is, God is not for you. Verse 3, but you, Lord, are a shield around me. You're my glory. You're the one who lifts my head high. How does this happen? How do you go from, Lord, everywhere I turn, I'm surrounded, and it is over, but... See, there's something about getting into God's presence, even in the middle of our grief and our agony, that begins to change a perspective. Hold on. All of this is true, but it's not complete truth. There's another reality at work. God, you're a shield around me. You're my glory. I know my head is bowed and covered in grief, but you're the one who lifts my head. Have you ever taken the chin of your child when they're hurting? Lifted it up. May them look you in the eye. God, you're the one who touches my chin and who raises my gaze. I, and then he says in verse four, I call out to the Lord and he answers me. He hadn't answered David. God hadn't answered David's prayer and yet something was so changing on the inside of David <clears throat> that when he prayed, he already could sense God's answer. In fact, do you know what was actually happening when David's praying this? Absalom didn't just betray David. He, he was wicked in his betrayal. David had a harem. Never should have had a harem. Harems aren't good ideas. But David had a harem. And as a defiant act, one of the first things Absalom did as the newly usurped king or usurper king, he set a tent on top of the palace roof in Jerusalem. And he made all of the, the girls from the harem go into this tent. And then in view of everyone, so the whole city could see him, just did a little wave, and then he ducked into the tent to sleep with David's concubines. So nothing was changing while David was praying, and yet something inside David was changing. And so he says, Lord, I lie down and sleep, but I awake because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. So do you see what just happened here? David's inner reality had just become greater than his outer reality. David's internal strength had just become greater than the external pressures. David's inner resources had been so reinforced that it didn't matter if he was surrounded by thousands because he was infused by one who was greater than the thousands. And then in verse seven, he goes on the offense. He starts out being bold backwards. On verse seven, he says, arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. So hold on a second. Either you're bipolar or something is so transformative in the process of prayer that you can start out on the ropes going down and before you're done, you're on the offense and you've got a second wind. And then listen to how the psalm ends. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. You know, this verse, this verse is so interesting to me. It doesn't fit. From the Lord comes deliverance. Your blessing be upon your people. If we were to lift this verse out of this psalm and look at it in a separate context, 
this almost sounds like a gentle pastoral blessing. You know the ironic blessing from Numbers? May the Lord bless you and keep you and let his face shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It, this sounds like that kind of a blessing. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. This just does not even fit with David's experience. Except that prayer brings us into a greater experience. Prayer changed David. And David came through that trial more humble, more devout, more dependent and stronger than he ever had before. So here's what I would like from us today. I just want to ask, can we just move up a couple of grades in our understanding of prayer? Can we just move a little bit beyond the kindergarten understanding? He does answer prayer. Don't ever let somebody explain prayer away. He does perform miracles. He does do wonders. He will blow your mind at times with the things that he does. But let's realize that even when that's not seeming to happen, he is transforming you. He's putting rebar in your soul. And you already have a book in your Bible that's designed to help you. So in the middle of your Bible, you have 150 Psalms. And I've taught on this before, but in closing, let me just appeal to you again. I would like every single person at Grace to commit to praying one Psalm a day. If you would start tomorrow on Psalm 1, and every single day you pray another Psalm, uh, there's power in the scripted Psalms. There's power in the set prayers or a, a scheduled liturgy. And I tell you what, if you were to quietly, thoughtfully pray a psalm, and by praying it, I mean you read a word or two, and then you apply it in prayer. God, do that for Jessica. Do it for Amber. Do it for Maddie. Do it for Grace Church. Do it for, for our world. You could easily, every one of you could easily pray for 30 to 60 minutes at a time. No problem. And you probably wouldn't even finish the psalm. It would force you to pray things you wouldn't normally pray. You know, in the book of Psalms, there's about five different genres of psalm or literature. Some of the psalms are psalms of thanksgiving. This is just, God, thank you. Thank you for your blessing. Thank you for being God. Thank you for your love. And that does something to the soul to become grateful. A lot, a lot of times, though, thanksgiving leads to praise. And there are other psalms that are praise psalms. So thanksgiving says thank you. Praise says, you are awesome, and you are mighty, and, and the, the Lord on high is mightier than the ocean, um, th and that's good for the human soul to get to a place of praise. Some of the Psalms are supplication. This is where I just open up my soul, and I pour out my soul to God. This is where I am, and this is what I need. Some of the Psalms are lament. This is when I cry and I grieve and this sucks and I don't know what to do and help me, God. And some of the Psalms are messianic. They're prophetic pictures pointing toward the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And then some of the Psalms are imprecatory. We got a little taste of imprecatory here in Psalm 3. Imprecatory, those are attack Psalms. When David says, break the teeth of the wicked, he's not saying shatter a human being's teeth. He's saying there are spiritual powers around us that are adversely affecting the world. Break those things, God. Uproot Satan's work. Don't let any demonic power have any bit of influence in a person's life. And when you pray through a psalm every day, you will eventually touch each of these areas. And as you touch these areas, and as the psalm reads you, it's so crazy how this happens. 
Maybe yesterday you read Psalm 32. So today you read Psalm 33. And, and Psalm 33 is exactly where you are. And you leave thinking, how in the world could Psalm 33 read my mail to this level? Only God. So this discipline of praying through the Psalms will teach us how to pray. It will take us to areas of prayer we wouldn't get to on our own. It's, it will cure boredom. Is prayer ever boring? Do you ever really want to pray, but then, well, okay, I said it all, so now what? Okay, I'm here trying to have a conversation, but th this will cure that for you. Prayer will bring you into contact with the presence of God, and that will change everything. Stephen, come back up here. Um, you know one thing I love about this process of prayer? It doesn't always happen at the moment, but when you make prayer a part of your everyday experience, you will come to a place when you suddenly look at yourself and you realize, I am way stronger than I thought I was. I can't believe I'm still standing. This should have floored me, but, but, I'm, but it didn't. And it's not because I'm all that. It's because somehow, wait a minute. Wait a minute, I'm sweating. <laughs> didn't realize that. But, but, but wait a minute, there's, there's rebar in my soul. I, I can breathe. I should have been suffocated by now, but I can still breathe. There's oxygen flowing through me. These depths aren't going to consume me. Prayer will strengthen you. It will reinforce you. You will be indwelt by the spirit of God who is like structured steel that keeps you from crumbling from the pressures from without. So guys, let's pray. Can, can we graduate? Can we increase our prayer lives individually and increase our prayer as a a church community. I promise you this too. Last statement. If you will work this process consistently, things outside you will eventually change. They will eventually change. God will answer your prayers. He will come through for you. He will make good on his promises. It's just along the way, you didn't just get a gift wrapped answer to prayer. You also became a, an avenger. You also touched a superhero quality that you didn't even know you had.